go across the sea for me to see to my love there she goes above the misty hills to the clouds that are above she rides high on disco lights but i fear that she smells my fear I once danced in a rainbow below the earth Only once, but nothing was more clear That I must continue to fight for the divine Right to die the tunnel It is far too bright Man, it seems out of sight Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. And this is, um, (laughs) what is this? This is Murder in Oregon. Murder in Oregon. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Armchair Apocrypha. That's right. This is the podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mercury is locked in the garage, so hopefully he will be uh, a little bit quieter this episode. Uh, I also want to apologize for how late this episode is. Uh, Rachel, with the new job and leaving the old job, mm-hmm. just got a little bit busy. Just a wee bit. Just a wee bit. Uh, how's your three weeks been? Yes. How's your three weeks been? Oh my god. <laughs> is that really yeah. how long it's been? Yeah. It's been going well. Yeah, it has. It's gone well. It's good. Yeah. Still a lot to learn. Still you like him the new learn. job? I really am. I'm liking it a lot. Good. It's really good. Yeah. I love it. You've also got uh, a new niece. Oh, yes. I have a new baby <laughs> niece. She's so cute. She's so cute. I just like touch her, pinch her cheeks all the time. How big was she? Six pounds, 12 ounces. Six pounds, 12 ounces. That no. is tiny. Yeah, she is tiny now. She's like a whopping seven pounds, two ounces. Yeah. So yeah, a little tiny baby. That Ooh. is a tiny baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's so sweet. Her eyes barely open still. Yeah. You were talking at trivia about her doing the little uh, grabby thing. Oh yeah, where they use your hands to like, grab your, fin- <laughs> your one finger. Yeah. It's so cute. They've got that reflex where they're trying to grab yeah. onto it, but they don't have any muscles in their hands. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's very cute. It is. It's very cute. Oh, so cute. Yeah. Um, do you want to get into today's episode? I do. Cool. Uh, have you ever heard of Zenobia? Is that a person or a country? That's a person. I have not. She was a third century queen of the Palmyrene Empire in what is today Syria. Oh, cool. Do tell. (laughs) Uh, so this is going to be a hashtag armchair apocrypha episode because (laughs) there's a lot that either we don't know about her or that is, uh, conflicting stories about her. Um, but she was born around 240 to 241, uh, uh, AD. Um, her last name was Septimia, uh, and her native, uh, Palmyrin name was Batzabai, written as Bitsby. Okay. Um, there's a lot of different theories about who her father was. She was probably not a commoner. She was probably from a royal family. But nobody knows for sure exactly who her father actually was. All right. 
Uh, she married the ruler of the city Odanathus, I believe is how it's pronounced, but I could be wrong. Um, her husband became king in 260, elevating Palmyra to a supreme power in the Near East. Um, he consolidated his power by defeating the Sasanians and stabilizing the Roman East. Uh, but he was assassinated, and once he was assassinated, Zenobia became the regent of her son, Vibalathus, uh, maybe? And she became the de facto power throughout the region. Nice. Yeah. Uh, let's see. During the early centuries AD, Palmyra was a city subordinate to Rome and the power of the province of Syria Phonis. Um, in 260, uh, the Roman Emperor Valerian marched against the Sassanid Persian monarch Shapur I, who had invaded the empire's eastern regions. Valerian was defeated and captured near Edessa. Odanathus, formerly uh, loyal to Rome and its emperor Galli Gallianus, uh, was declared the king of Palmyra. Launching successful campaigns against Persia, he was crowned king of kings of the east in 263. Odanathus crowned his eldest son, Herodianus as co-ruler. In addition to the royal titles, Odanathus received many Roman titles, most importantly, corrector, um, and ruled the Roman territories from Black Sea to Palestine. In 267, when Zenobia was in her late 20s or early 30s, Odanathus and his eldest son were assassinated while returning from a campaign. The first inscription mentioning Zenobia as queen is dated two or three years after Odanathus' death. Uh, so exactly when Zenobia assumed the title Queen of Palmyra is uncertain. However, she was probably designated as queen when her husband became king. Mm -hmm. As queen consort, Zenobia remained in, her, in the background and was not mentioned in the historical records. According to later accounts, including one by Giovanni Boccaccio, she accompanied her husband on all of his campaigns. If the accounts of her accompanying her husband are true, according to the Southern, uh, Zenobia would have boosted the morale of the soldiers and gained political influence, which she needed in her, in her later career. According to Augustan history, Odanathus was assassinated by a cousin named Maonius. In the Augustan history, Odanathus' son from his first wife was named Herodes and was crowned co-ruler by his father. The Augustan history claims that Zenobia conspired with Maonius for a time because she did not accept her stepson as his father's heir. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the Augustan history does not suggest that Zenobia was involved in the events leading to her husband's murder, and the crime is attributed to Moenus' moral degeneration and jealousy. This account, according to the historian Alec Watson, can be dismissed as fictional. Although some modern scholarship suggests that Zenobia was involved in the assassination due to political ambition and op opposition to her husband's pro-Roman policy, she continued Odanathus' policies during her first years on the throne. Okay. Um, Moenius was emperor briefly before he was killed by his soldiers. Um, however, no inscriptions or evidence exists for his reign, suggesting that they might have all been destroyed. Ha At the time of Odanathus's assassination, Zenobia might have been with her husband, according to the chronicler George Sinkelis, who was killed near... Uh, he was killed near Heraclea Pontica in Bithynia. 
The transfer of power seems to have been smooth, since Sincellus reports that the time of the assassination, uh, that the time from the assassination to the army handing the crown to Zenobia was about one day. <laughs> Zenobia may have been in Palmyra, but this would have reduced the likelihood of such a smooth transition. The soldiers might have chosen one of their officers, so the first scenario of her being with her husband is more likely. The historical records are unanimous that Zenobia did fight uh, for, did not fight for supremacy, and there is no evidence of delay in the transfer of the throne to Adenathus or Zenobia's son, the ten-year-old Vabalathus. <laughs> Although she never claimed to rule in her own right and act as a regent for her son, Zenobia held the reins of power to the kingdom, and Vabalathus was kept in his mother's shadow, never ex- exercising real power. Uh, since the Palmyrian monarchy was new, allegiance was based on loyalty to Odanathus, making the transfer of power to a successor more difficult than it would have been in an established monarchy. Odanathus tried to ensure the dynasty's future by crowning his eldest son, Co-King, um, but he was assassinated. Zenobia left to secure the Palmyrene succession and retain the loyalties of its subjects, emphasized the continuity between her late husband and his, success for, his successor, her son. Uh, Odanathus had controlled a large area of the Roman East and held the highest political and military authority in the region. Um, his self-created status was formalized by Emperor Gallienus, uh, who had little choice to acquiesce after the military success. The extent, to Z- the extent of Zenobia's territorial control during her early reign is debated. Hashtag armchair apocrypha. <laughs> According to the historian Fergus Miller, her authority was confined to Palmyra and Emesa until 270. If this was the case, the events of 270, which saw Zenobia's conquest of Levant and Egypt, are extraordinary. It's much more likely that the queen ruled the territories controlled by her late husband. Um, The Augustan history also mentions that Zenobia took control of the east during Gileanus' reign. Further evidence of extended territorial control was a, st- uh, a statement by the Byzantine historian Zosimus, who wrote that the queen had a residence in Antioch. In 269, while uh, Claudius Gothicus, Gallienus' successor, was defending the borders of Italy and the Balkans against Germanic invasions, Zenobia was cementing her authority. Roman officials in the east were caught between loyalty to the emperor and Zenobia's increasing demands for legions. The timing and rationale of the, queen des- the Queen's decision to use military force to strengthen her authority in the East is unclear. Scholar Gary Young suggested that the Roman officials refused to recognize Palmyrene authority, and Zenobia's expeditions were intended to maintain Palmyrene dominance. Another factor may have been the weakness of the Roman central authority and its corresponding inability to protect the provinces, which probably convinced Zenobia that the only way to maintain stability in the East was to control the region directly. The historian Jacques Schwartz tied Zenobia's actions to her desire to protect Palmyra's econo- economic interest, which were threatened by, Roman, uh, by Rome's failure to protect the provinces. Also, according to Schwartz, the economic interest conflicted. Bostra and Egypt received trade, which would have otherwise passed through Palmyra. The Tonicids near Bostra and the merchants of Alexandria probably attempted to rid themselves of Palmyrene domination, triggering a military response from Zenobia. In about uh, 270 AD, uh, the invasion of Egypt uh, 
occurred, and it's usually explained uh, as Zenobia's desire to secure an alternative trade route to the Euphrates, which was cut down uh, because of the war with Persia. Okay. According to historian Watson, the occupation of Egypt was an opportunistic move by Zenobia, who was encouraged by the news of Claudius's death in August. The appearance of the Palmyrans in Egypt's eastern frontier would have contributed to the unrest in the province, whose society was fractured. Zenobia had supporters and opponents uh, among local Egyptians. The Roman position was worsened by the absence of Egypt's prefect, Tenagino Probus, who was battling pirates at the time. Can you imagine that? You're battling pirates and the Syrian emperor just swoops in. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) According to Zosimus, the Palmyrenes were helped by an Egyptian general named Timogenes, Timogenes, uh, Zabdas uh, moved into Egypt with 70,000 soldiers, defeating an army of about 50,000 Romans. Uh, after their victory, the Palmyrenes withdrew their main force and left a 5,000-soldier garrison. By early November, Tenagino Promus returned and assembled an army. He expelled the Palmyrenes and regained Alexandria, prompting Zabdas to return. The Palmyrene general aimed a thrust at Alexandria, where he seems to have had local support. The city fell into Zabdus's hands, and the Roman prefect fled south. The last battle was at Babylon Fortress, where Tanagino Promus took refuge. The Romans had the upper hand since they chose their camp caref- carefully. Timogenes, with his knowledge of the land, ambushed the Roman rear. Tanagino Probus committed suicide, and Egypt became par- uh, part of Palmyra. In the Augustan history, the Blemies were among Zenobia's allies, and Gary K. Young cites the Blemies attack and the occupation of Coptus in 268 as evidence of a Palmyrene Blemis alliance. Huh. Zenobia ruled uh, her new empire um, as a Palmyrene. Uh, she was accustomed to dealing with multilingual multilingual and multicultural diversity since she held from a city which embraced many cults. The Queen's realm was culturally divided into Eastern Semitic and Hellenistic zones. Zenobia tried to appease both. It seems to have successfully appealed to the region's ethnic, cultural, and political groups. The Queen projected an image of a Syrian monarch, a Hellenistic queen, and a Roman empress, which gained broad support uh, for her cause. Uh, Zenobia turned her court into a sitter of learning, with many intellectuals and sophists reported in Palmyra during her reign. As, a, as academics migrated to the city, it replaced classical learning centers such as Athens for Syrians. The best-known court philosopher was Longinus, who arrived during Odaenathus's reign and became Zenobia's tutor uh, in aristocratic education. Many historians, including Zosimus, accused Longinus of influencing the queen to oppose Rome. This view presents the queen as malleable, but according to Southern, Zenobia's actions cannot be laid entirely at Longinus's door. Other intellectuals associated with the court included Nicostratus of Trapezus and Callinicus of Petra, which sound like fake names. Uh, Zenobia embarked on several restoration projects in Egypt. One of the Colossi of Memnon was reputed in antiquity to sing. The sound was probably due to cracks in the statue with solar rays interacting with dew in the cracks. The historian Glenn Bowersock proposed that the queen restored the Colossus, silencing it. 
which would explain third century accounts of the singing and their disappearance in the fourth. Zenobia followed Palmyrene paganism, where a number of Semitic gods with Bel at the head of the pantheon were worshipped. Uh, she accommodated Christians and Jews alike, and ancient sources made many claims about the queen's belief. Manichaeist sources allege that Zenobia was one of their own. It is more likely, however, that Zenobia tolerated all the cults in an effort to attract support from groups <laughs> marginalized by Rome. So come to come to Palmyra. We don't have that that pesky Roman uh, <laughs> uh, religious persecution. Uh, less than a hundred years after Zenobia's reign, Athani uh, Athanasius of Alexandria called her Jewess in his history of the Arians. In 391, Archbishop of John Chrysostom wrote that Zenobia was Jewess. Um, according to French scholar Javier Telexidor, Zenobia was probably a newcomer to Judaism, a proselyte, mm -hmm. and that would explain how she kind of got a, got along with um, the temples and yeah. the churches in, in the city. Uh, the queen probably spent most of her reign in Antioch, Syria's administrative capital. Uh, before the monarchy, Palmyra had a, the institutions of a Greek city, Apollos, and was ruled by a senate, which was responsible for most civil affairs. Odanathus maintains the Palmyra's institution, as did Zenobia. Uh, a Palmyrene inscription after her fall records the name of Septimus Hadadan, a Palmyrene senator. However, the queen apparently ruled aristocratic or autocratically, not aristocratically. <laughs> Septimius Warred and Odanathus's viceroy and one of Palmyra's most important officials disappeared from the record after Zenobia's ascent. The queen opened the doors of her government to Eastern nobility, and her most important courtiers and advisors were her generals, both of whom uh, served under her late husband. An inscription found in Palmyra and dated, dated August 271 called Zenobia the Pious, uh, this title, used by the Roman empresses, could be seen as a step by the queen toward an imperial state. Another contemporary inscription called her Sebast, the Greek equivalent of empress, but also acknowledged the Roman emperor. A late 271 Egyptian grain receipt equated Aurelian and Vibolithus, jointly called them Augusti. Finally, Palmyra officially broke from Rome, the Alexandrian and Antiochian, Mintz removed Aurelian's portrait from the coins in April 272, issuing new tetradrachms in the uh, names of Vibatholus and Zenobia, Augustus and Augusta. The assumption of imperial titles by Zenobia signaled an usurpation, independence from, and open rebellion against Aurelian. Timeline of events and why Zenobia declared herself empress is vague. Um, hashtag armchair apocrypha. <laughs> The usurpation, which began in late March or early April 272, ended by August. Aurelian spent the winter of 271 to 272 in Byzantium, probably crossed the Bosporus to Asia Minor in April 272. Uh, Galatia fell easily as the Palmyran garrisons were apparently withdrawn and the provincial capital in, in Cairo was regained without a struggle. In May 272, Aurelian headed toward Antioch, about 40 kilometers north of the city. He defeated the Palmyran army led by Zabdas at the Battle of Emea. As a result, Zenobia, who waited in Antioch during the battle, retreated with her army to uh, Emesa. 
To conceal the disaster and make her flight safer, she spread reports that Aurelian was captured. Zobdis found a man who resembled the Roman emperor and paraded him through Antioch. The following day, Aurelian entered the city before marching south. After defeating a Palmyran garrison south of Antioch, Aurelian continued his march uh, to meet Zenobia in the Battle of Emesa. The 70,000-strong Palmyrian army assembled on the plain of Emesa nearly routed the, the Romans. In initial thrill of victory, they hastened their advance, breaking their lines, enabling Roman infantry to attack their flank. The defeated Zenobia headed to the capital on the advice of her war council, leaving her treasury behind. In Palmyra, the queen prepared for a siege. Aurelian blockaded food supply routes, and they were probably unsuccessful. Uh, there were probably unsuccessful negotiations. According to Augustan history, Zenobia said that she would fight Aurelian with the help of her Persian allies. However, the story was probably fabricated and used by the emperor to link Zenobia to Rome's greatest enemy in Persia. Aurelian, learning of Zenobia's departure, sent a contingent which captured the queen before she could cross the Euphrates to Persia. Palmyra capitulated soon after news of Zenobia's captivity reached the city in August of 272. Uh, Zenobia's fate after Emesa is uncertain, hashtag Apocrypha, since ancient historians left conflicting accounts. Zosimus wrote that she died before crossing the Bosporus on her way to Rome. According to this account, the queen became ill or starved herself to death. The generally unreliable chronicler, John Malalis, wrote that Aurelian humiliated Zenobia by preparing her through the eastern city on a dromedary. In Antioch, the emperor had her chained and seated on a dais in the hypodrome for three days before the city's populace. Malalis concluded his account by writing that Zenobia appeared on Aurelian's triumph and then was beheaded. Most ancient historians and modern scholars agree that Zenobia was dis uh, displayed in Aurelian's 274 triumph. Zosimus was the only source to say that the queen died before reaching Rome, making his account questionable. Public humiliation, as recounted by Malalos, is a plausible scenario, since Aurelian would probably have wanted to publicize his suppression of the Palmyran rebellion. Only Malalos, however, describes Zenobia's beheading. According to the other historians, her life was spared after Aurelian's triumph. The Augustan history recorded that Aurelian gave Zenobia a villa in Tibur, near Hadrian's villa, where she lived with her children. Cenaris wrote that Zenobia married a nobleman, and Sincellus uh, that she married a Roman senator. The house she reportedly occupied became a tourist attraction in Rome. So, she may have lived, or she may have died. We have no idea <laughs> which it is. She's still alive to this day, and here she is tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Just like Elvis. <laughs> and that is Zenobia. That was fascinating. Okay, well, mine's not about a person. Okay. I decided to go with something along the lines of my new job. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of jury pools. <laughs> jury pools? Yes. Okay. Um, my computer has stopped working, so I just kind of cut and pasted, so I'm going to, it's going to be really out of whack. <laughs> okay. From like three different articles. But, so, this one article starts out, why exactly are people randomly picked to serve on jury duty? Wouldn't mm -hmm. it be better to let legal experts decide important court cases and not a dozen random strangers who came up with the system anyway? Uh -huh. The answer to the last question, like most, is the ancient Greeks. Okay. In the groundbreaking Athenian democracy created in 507 BCE, all court cases were decided directly by the people. 
Huge juries of 500 people or more were selected every day from a pool of roughly 40,000 adult males, because let's be honest, to rule on everything from murder cases to neighborly squabbles. That's a lot of turnover. Like, you would be in in a jury, Mm -hmm. like, every two weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe they all, like, served for, like, a year. (laughs) Um, Then it talks about the Magna Carta. Magna Carta penned in 1215, expressly included the right of every free man to protection from punishment without the lawful judgment of his peers. Okay. The 18th century framers of the United States Constitution believed that a trial by an impartial jury was among the principal rights of any free society. In fact, the 5th, 6th, and 7th amendments of our Constitution ensure the right to a jury in both criminal and civil cases. Okay. Today, U.S. federal law states that juries must be selected at random Mm -hmm. from a fair cross-section of the community wherein the court convenes. Hence, the computer-selected names from a list of registered voters and licensed drivers. That's how they get your name and address. Okay. Uh, The law further states that all citizens shall have the opportunity to be considered for service and shall have an obligation to serve a jurors when summoned for the purpose. Okay. These two components of the U.S. jury system, randomness and compulsory service, combine to ensure that a jury is a representative sample of the community, regardless of race, gender, political affiliation, or ability to weasel out of jury duty. Until they start dismissing people. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, um, they have to have more of like a cause, Yeah. if that makes sense. Being called for jury duty does not mean that you'll sit on an actual case. Okay. In fact, there's a good chance that you'll be dismissed the same day and sent home with your free pass for a year. Well, that's kind of not completely right, but um, I can get more into what I've learned after I finish this. When a trial requires a jury, prospective jurors are brought in and asked questions by lawyers from mm-hmm. both sides in a process called voir dire. Right. From a, from a large group of prospective jurors called each day, only 6 to 12, a trial or petite jury, will be chosen for the trial phase of criminal or civil cases mm-hmm. and up to 23 for a grand jury. Right. Each side's lawyers can reject a number of prospective jurors. That's the other thing, too, is like they can only knock off so many. Yeah. Without giving a reason. Uh, this is called preemptor, preemptory challenge. Right. And the number allowed ranges between 3 and 20 per side, depending on the type of case. That's a, that's a big range. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends on how big they bring in. So usually, for most judges that I've seen so far, they'll call from anywhere from 35 to 45. There's a really big case that took about two weeks, and the judge called for a little over 50. Okay. And it took him over a day to narrow it down to 12. Yeah. Um. And that was a civil case. Since some alternates are also needed for the jury box, you have to have a large pool of potential jurors to seat 12 people and two alternates. That's one reason you might find your jury summons coming quite regularly. That's for some people. Another is if you live in an area with a high rate of no-shows. That means the court may request a lot more people to appear than it might need. Mm. Um, Now we're on to another article so we're just gonna see what this one says i mean i've looked them over it's just been a while or it's just been a hot second uh by the time the united states constitution and the bill of rights were actually drafted and ratified the institution of trial by jury was almost universally revered so revered that its history had been traced back like i said to the magna carta that's kind of like what they took it from right 
Henry II regularized this type of proceeding to establish royal control over the machinery of justice, first in civil trials and then in criminal trials. Okay. Trial by petite jury was not employed until at least the reign of Henry III, in which the juror was first essentially a body of witnesses, uh-huh. called for their knowledge of the case, not until Henry VI now did it become the the trier of evidence. Okay. It was during the 17th century that the jury emerged as a safeguard for the criminally accused. Okay. Thus, in the 18th century, Blackstone could commemorate the institution as a part of strong and twofold barrier between the liberties of the people and the prerogative of the crown, hmm. because the truth of every accusation must be confirmed by the unanimous suffrage of 12 of his equals and neighbors indifferently chosen and superior to all suspicion. Okay. The right was guaranteed in the Constitution of the original 13 states, was guaranteed in the body of the Constitution and in the Sixth Amendment, and the con- and the Constitution of every state entering the Union thereafter in one form or another. Mm-hmm. During the reign of Charlemagne, juries interrogated prisoners, which I thought was pretty interesting. Your jury interrogating you? Yeah. Well, it says, long before becoming an impartial body, sorry, during the reign of Charlemagne, Juries interrogated prisoners. In the 12th century, the Normans brought the jury to England, where its accusatory function remained. Citizens acting as jurors were required to come forward as witnesses and to give evidence before the monarch's judges. Okay. Not until the 14th century did jurors cease to be witnesses, like I said, and begin to assume their modern role as uh, triers of fact, which I think is a kind of funny phrase. Right. But um, I thought I, well, I'll get to this last part that I think is really funny. Okay. I have two more things, but so England, Scotland, Wales, and Canada do not have as liberal a standard concerning trial by jury. Okay. In those countries, persons accused of non, non-indictable, crimeless, serious crimes for which the prescribed punishment is less than two years in prison do not have the right to a trial by jury. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what this art. Hashtag armchair proctor. Hashtag armchair proctor. Indeed, Blackstone, the 18th century English scholar of law, was at pains to point out that in English law, trial by jury was a privilege, not a right. Hmm. Um, These other countries also make less frequent use of the civil jury. Indeed, outside of North America, the civil jury has all but disappeared. So it's like they really only use it for criminal cases. Um, Estimates are that 80% of all jury trials worldwide take place in the United States. Wow. Which is crazy. That's a lot. And what I can, what I've noticed in my whopping three weeks at work yeah. is like most, like very few trials actually happen. Yeah. But it can differentiate. Like most judges will maybe have go to trial once a month. Yet, um, the one judge I've been kind of seeing this week had two trials in the month of January already. Yeah. But the weird thing is, when you are selected for a jury, it, the trial might not end. Or the trial, they might take a plea, right. and you never have to make a decision. Right, and right. most trials, most petite trials are like two to three days. Yeah. Um, so here's something else I've learned. So this is an article from 25th, January 2015. Okay. And this is talking about the dickhead who, uh, in Aurora, who like killed all the people in the movie theater. Yeah. Um, and then one of the guys in Boston. So this article says in Boston, 
Dakar Tarzanev is accused of assassinate of assassin, assisting his brother in the planning and execution of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing, right. which left three dead and 260 injured. Right. And then in, in the suburbs of Denver, James Holm is standing on trial for killing 12 people and wounding somebody more during a, right. the Colorado movie theater. So, I remember both of these. Yes, and in, in both, the judges and lawyers involved face a particular challenge of finding 12 people who could possibly qualify as an impartial jury as required by the Constitution. It's the information age, baby. Yeah, in Boston, more than 1,200 people have been called to answer questions in the first round of jury selection, and in Colorado, an unprecedented 9,000 prospective jurors have been called to do the same. Okay. Um, the second number, 9,000, is reportedly the largest potential juror pool called in the history of the United States. By contrast, only 500 potential jurors are called for the 2013 trial of George Zimmerman, 600 for Jerry Sandusky abuse trials, and 500 for the sentencing trial of Zacharias Musau. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so why 9,000? The presiding judge in any case can decide the size of jury selection pool, but may request to interview Colorado... Colorado uh, but the... Inter- the request to interview this judge uh, didn't get answered. Okay. Um, that being said, it kind of talks about how I think 9,000 went out and they expect 20 to 30% not to be able to show up. And right. then it narrows it down and then they'll narrow it down from there. Right. Um, I thought I copy and pasted it, but my computer's been messing up. So basically, if you do report for jury duty, mm-hmm. jury duty, petite jury duty is what almost everyone gets. Yeah. It's two weeks long. And if you report for jury duty, you don't have to be called for two more years after serving. Um, have you ever been called? I was, but that's when I was one of an automatic excuses if you're a full-time student. Yeah. And I was going to school in another state, and so I said that. And so I was, so I was excuse. I actually looked myself up, and it said it on there. And I was like, but this has my old address on there. And the girl was like, yeah, because that was when you were called. I'm pretty sure if yeah. I get called now, I'll get, it'll be sent to the right address, but we'll see. Hopefully. I mean, it's my parents' address. So <laughs> <I get it. laughs> um, so that's the only time I've been called. My mom's been called like two or three times. Yeah. Uh, my dad's been called once or twice, but his has only been in Texas. He hasn't been called in Kentucky. Have yeah. you been called? I have never been called. I know. Well, but now I it's did, like super easy for me. I did, um, I did move around a lot. Uh, this mm-hmm. is the probably the first time i've lived anywhere more than three years so yeah it the chances are that i'm going to be called while i live in kentucky somehow yeah um and the weird thing of all about jefferson county is it's a lot bigger yeah and I, i'm kind of curious about how these smaller counties go but i don't think they go to that many jury trials either right because i was asking him like well what if there's a big murder case for a small county and everyone knows that person well that have to be moved and she's like you know moved somewhere else yeah because they're high profile, and she's like, "Yeah, but they try really hard not to do that if they can't, because that's so expensive." Right. <laughs> but if it's, but the whole thing is like, they have to go with that over cost. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it'd be really interesting, but also a little scary. Like even the trial I was like watching this week, you have to find a a guy or a girl if she's guilty or not and then if they don't want to take a plea with the attorney commonwealth attorney then they have to um then the jurors have to decide how much time they get right which is crazy i mean they're given a a, an amount of time a window like 10 to 20 or 10 to 30 and then they decide yeah um 
and that's Camilo Scary. Remember, my dad told me that the juror he was on it was really scared because the guy like sold a lot of like cocaine drugs and also murdered somebody. Wow! And he was like, it was really obvious that he did it, and you could tell everyone was nervous because he was going to go to jail for almost his entire life. Yeah. It was a lot. And then right before they were going to make the decision, he took a plea deal. Okay. So he's like, I feel kind of like relieved. I don't have to make a decision on that. Yeah. And my mom said that she was on like a civil case. When she was like in her early 20s in Texas, she's like, looking back, I probably would have gone the other way. Yeah. It had to, it had to do with like money, like a couple, couple thousand dollars, which isn't like nothing. Right. Um, especially probably back in the 90s. But she's like, I was leaning one way. Like you were in the jury room for actually a couple hours. And then it was just like her and like three other people and they got swayed to the other side or as vice versa. And she's yeah. like, thinking about it now, now that I'm older, I may have gone the other way, but... Who knows if she also remembers the case that right, well. Right. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, it's been a hot minute. But jury duty, well, from what I've seen, it's pretty interesting. Next Monday, or on Monday, is the start of a new two-week. Yeah. So it's all new people coming in. I don't know how to follow directions. but <laughs> um, The best thing, and I've told you, is just seeing the people will have to write excuses for why they can't serve. Like yeah. You have to write a letter to the chief judge and the chief judge will either accept or deny it. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I've also watched Grand Jury. I didn't mm. want to go for that because it's a little different. And apparently the guy, the judge who's doing Grand Jury next month literally t- tells, so basically when you do a Grand Jury, you serve for a month. Yeah. And the judge that kind of is there for it is for a month so they're kind of together so the judge and the people are there for a month and the next month it's a new judge and a new group of people who do the okay. grand jury stuff yeah the judge does nothing except just assign things they spend all morning deciding whether there's enough proof that this sh- person should be indicted yeah. or not um and then they go to the courtroom right and then the judge is there to like just hear it all out um but apparently this one judge who's on it next month loves giving the history of the grand jury <laughs> like he'll go on and on about it and the one he's like every day he'll tell you a little bit more so maybe at the end of february i'll like know everything <laughs> about the history of the grand jury and tell you about it <laughs> yeah report back i will <laughs> but i don't go there all the time so who knows <laughs> i don't i only help out when they when it's needed on grand jury right um but it's pretty i find it fascinating yeah I know how people like, are like, ugh, jury duty. <laughs> but when you find out more stuff about it, it's interesting. It's pretty interesting, yeah. But that's my spiel on jury pool. Okay, then. Well, that was, uh, was this week's episode. <laughs> um, we're going to we're gonna get out of here. I'm sure we're both tired after a, l- a long week at work. Uh-huh. Um, I have updated our websites. We actually have our own domain now, name now. Um, so if you go to absintheactivismarts.com, uh, you'll find all of our information. We've got our Patreon and, uh, LibrePay, uh, buttons on there. If you feel like giving us some money, uh, we've got pages for, uh, me, Mary, uh, Katie, uh, Florin, who, um, we've talked about Christine Renee Farley on the, uh, podcast before, uh, our actor, um, is changing their name. It's Florin Keitler now. Um, and so there's a page for Florin Keitler. Um, 
and Joshua Paul Brooks, who is doing much better than the last time we Good. talked about him on the, the podcast. He is in a program. Um, hopefully he's going to get uh, his own place uh, once he graduates from the program. Um, he's got a new job. I'm so thankful mm-hmm. <laughs> that he was able to turn everything around so quickly. Um, he's got his uh, his page on there. Go check him out. Um, and we also... Uh, have um a page for this podcast if you ever want to listen to all of our episodes all in one place there is a page on our website that we can do that all at the same time all do at it. the same time uh <laughs> the only thing that i know that doesn't work on the website is the contact us form uh if you try That's to contact us <laughs> <laughs> if you try to contact us through the contact us form it's not going to work until I get it fixed. Uh, so in the meantime, you can email us at absentactivismarts at gmail.com. Um, yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, we're going to get out of here. We love you, and we will see you next episode. Under the tongues of men lie the simple truths of terror. But my love's eyes make bright the night skies And clears the stormy weather In the rain I'm like a wet dog And my hunger it intensifies But the thunder clears all my mind sounds And the fear it is justified The lightning scorches the plains The fantasies go up and flame the distinguished author goes insane but my love she remains just the same